0: I'm getting together with some of the coolest true crime podcast hosts for a meetup in Los Angeles. I'm so excited about the podcasts who are participating, and I think you will be too. So far, we have the following podcasts will be there. The Cleaning of John Doe, Murderous Miners, White Wine True Crime, Pretty Scary, The Pros and Cons, Crime with Three Eyes, A Mystery Podcast, and of course, I'll be there representing Murderish. We'll be dropping hints over the next few days about the Mystery Podcast. Make sure you're following Murderish on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram so you don't miss out on the guessing game. Let me just say, you will not be disappointed when we announce the mystery podcast. This is all happening at Idle Hour in Los Angeles at 4824 Vineland Avenue, LA. It's happening on October 6th at 4 o'clock. Get out of the house and mingle with a bunch of murderish people just like you. Don't forget to tell a friend. I hope to see you guys there. Hey everyone, it's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. Recently, Murderish joined a new true crime network called Murderly. I'm in great company as Murderly is home to a lot of great true crime podcasts. I encourage you to check out the Murderly website to see a roster of all the great true crime pods that are in the Murderly family. Regarding this episode of Murderish, I want to warn you that the story involves children. I realize murders involving children are especially difficult and given that, this episode may not be suited for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. In this episode of Murderish, I'm taking you back to 1983. Songs like All Night Long by Lionel Richie and Uptown Girl by Billy Joel were topping the U.S. pop charts. This incredibly tragic story takes place in Bloomington, which is located in McLean County, Illinois. Bloomington is a predominantly middle-class area with State Farm being the largest employer. State Farm's corporate headquarters are located in Bloomington, and the company employs about 17,000 people in the area. Bloomington is the southern part of the Twin Cities, with the town of Normal being on the northern end. The crime rate in Bloomington is not high. In the 1980s, there was an average of two murders each year. November 7, 1983 was a sunny day in Bloomington. Although the day started out sunny and beautiful, evening fell and with it came a nightmare that would forever change the nice town of Bloomington. On the evening of November 8, 1983, police walked into the most gruesome crime scene they had ever seen at a residence located at 313 Carl Drive on the east side of Bloomington. Blood was spattered all over the walls of two upstairs bedrooms inside the upscale home. The home belonged to the Hendricks family, David Hendricks, 29, his wife Susan, 30, and their three children, Rebecca, age 9, Grace, age 7, and Benjamin, age 5. The Hendricks family, by all accounts, were a very quiet and deeply religious family. They belonged to a conservative Christian religious organization called the Plymouth Brethren, which has been called, quote, a Puritan-like group. David Hendricks was a very successful business owner who developed and sold orthopedic and prosthesis products through his company, Cash Manufacturing. Susan Hendricks, a stay-at-home mom, was described as a quiet woman who never wore jewelry or makeup. David and Susan met each other at a Bible conference when the two were teenagers. David Hendricks grew up the second oldest of seven children. David's parents, Charles and Laverne Hendricks, were strict and did not allow David and his siblings to watch TV. The Hendricks family, a very religious family, lived in an upscale home with a pool and a good-sized yard. David, although very bright, was only an average student. He didn't play sports and spent most of his free time in church. David's teachers described him as, quote, introverted and not popular. David could be seen carrying a Bible to school occasionally. Susan Hendricks also grew up in a deeply religious home where, quote, God is over everything. She was very bright, earning a spot in the National Honor Society in high school. Susan played the clarinet and was not popular in school. She was known to be very kind and extremely dedicated to her religion. So much so, she left high school in her senior year to work for the Bible Truth Publishers. According to some, Susan would have been valedictorian if she would have stayed in school. Susan did eventually earn a high school diploma. As an adult, Susan was frugal and lived life simply without excess. She and David had a dishwasher, but Susan preferred to wash dishes by hand. As a mother, she thought it was important for her children to learn how to do things around the house. Inside the Hendricks home on that terrible day in 1983, police found the dead bodies of Susan and all three children. Each of them found upstairs in bedrooms. The three children were found in the same bedroom and Susan was found in the master bedroom. All but Rebecca, the oldest of the children, had sustained horrific injuries to the head, neck and upper torso. Rebecca suffered a single skull fracture. The local newspaper reported the family had been, quote, hacked to death. Their bed sheets were completely soaked in blood. The apparent murder weapons, an axe and a knife, had been cleaned thoroughly and laid down on top of the bodies of the two youngest children, Grace and Benjamin, who were sharing a bed at the time they died. The alleged murder weapons would be analyzed for prints later, but none could be found. No defensive wounds were found on any of the bodies. Perhaps they were sleeping at the time they were attacked. The home appeared to be ransacked, however, police later said there were no signs of forced entry. On November 7th, 1983, the night before the bodies were discovered, Susan left the house just after 6 p.m. to attend a baby shower in a town about 40 miles away from their home. David took the kids to Chuck E. Cheese's around the same time Susan left the house. David and the kids ate pizza and stayed at Chuck E. Cheese's until about 8 p.m. At that time, they stopped at a book mobile and checked out some books before heading home. David and the kids arrived home around 8.30 p.m. According to David, he, quote, rested and read until Susan returned home from the baby shower around 10.30 p.m. David would later tell detectives he left the house around 12 a.m. after Susan and the kids had gone to bed. David said he then headed out on a three-hour drive to Wisconsin to do some unscheduled sales calls on medical providers to market his back brace. David checked into a red roof inn during the early morning hours of November 8th. Later that afternoon, David tried calling home but nobody answered. He also made calls to his office, some friends and relatives that afternoon. One of those phone calls was to Susan's brother. Susan and the children were supposed to have dinner at her brother's house that evening but they never arrived. David called Bloomington police about an hour after Susan was expected to be at her brother's house for dinner. During his call to police, David said he was concerned that Susan and their children may have had an accident on their way to dinner. After his call to police, David began driving home. David arrived home around 10 p.m. on the evening of November 8th, a day after he left for Wisconsin. There was yellow police tape around the house when David pulled up. Police Sergeant Dennis O'Brien informed David that his family was dead. According to Sergeant O'Brien, David lowered his head and said, Oh no. David then asked the police sergeant if his family suffered. Sergeant O'Brien told David, The scene was violent. David then said, "...they're with the Lord now." Detective Charles Crow questioned David at a neighbor's house not long after David arrived home that night. During questioning, David denied having anything to do with the murder of his family. According to police, David had a "...low-key response after learning his family was dead." Police said David was calm during questioning and showed little emotion, even when the questioning became more accusatory in nature. David told a reporter the day after the bodies were discovered that his family was, quote, much better off. He went on to say, quote, I know Susie and my three children are much better off and I'd wish them back for me is a selfish thing, but I know that they're with the Lord Jesus in heaven and I'm satisfied knowing that. The reporter asked David what should happen to the person responsible for the murders if he should get the death penalty. David responded by saying, quote, I'd like to see him get saved, It would be well worth it if one person found their way to heaven, don't you think so? A $10,000 reward was offered by Crime Stoppers of McLean County for any information leading to the indictment or conviction of the person or persons responsible for the murders. On December 5th, 1983, almost a month after his family was found murdered, David Hendricks was arrested and charged with eight counts of murder, two counts for each person. The first four counts were for the intent to kill and the other four counts charged David with actually committing the murders. The judge ordered David to be held in county jail with no bail. David's parents and siblings staunchly supported him and gave interviews saying that David was innocent. Interestingly, David also received support from his in-laws, Susan's family. Susan's parents and siblings all supported David and denied that he could have been responsible for his wife and children's murders. After his arrest, David hired Hal Jennings, a well-known criminal defense attorney out of Bloomington. Police investigating the murders were beginning to think the ransacking at the Hendricks home had been staged because drawers were pulled out but valuable items were left inside. Police also noted there were no signs of forced entry at the crime scene. In addition to this, information had come out that David acted inappropriately with several women he hired to model his back brace. David's trial was going to be heard by McLean County Circuit Judge Wayne C. Townley Jr. David claimed that Judge Townley was prejudiced against him, so David's attorneys filed a motion to request a new judge. Ultimately, David's trial landed in the hands of Judge Boehner. In addition to requesting a new judge, the defense requested a change in venue, citing that David would likely not receive a fair trial in McLean County due to all of the publicity following the murders. This motion was granted and it was ordered that trial would take place in Rockford, Illinois, located in Winnebago County. Rockford is about a two hour drive from the location where the murders took place. The defense was very happy about this motion being granted as Rockford was their first choice for the location of the trial. It was the prosecution's third choice. Winnebago County was more culturally diverse than McLean County. Although Winnebago County is about half the size of McLean County, Its population is double the size of McLean. The trial of infamous serial killer John Wayne Gacy was also tried in Winnebago County after a request to change venues was granted. McLean County State's Attorney Ronald Dozier requested an additional $10,000 in tax dollars to try David's case. Dozier cited transportation of witnesses as one of the major expenses for which he needed additional tax dollars. David Hendrick's trial was on track to be one of, if not the, most costly trial in McLean County history. The trial was set to begin on September 10, 1984, although the trial didn't actually begin until the following month. Ironically, David's trial began on the same day his daughter Rebecca's birthday. Becky would have turned 10 years old that day. The state's theory was that David killed his family because he wanted to get out of the marriage in order to pursue other women. The state contended that David decided to kill his family rather than get a divorce because he didn't want to be judged by members of his church. Divorce was highly frowned upon within David's religion. The state called several women as witnesses to testify about David's inappropriate behavior toward them. One of the alleged incidents happened just a week before the murders. The state also called witnesses who worked in the same line of business as David. These witnesses testified regarding the inappropriateness of having women take their clothes off in order to model a back brace, as was alleged to be the case with David. One of the models who testified said David told her she needed to be naked in order for him to take measurements for the back brace. The model then asked David if she could wear undergarments during the fitting. David told her she could wear bottoms, but she could not wear a top. After this exchange with David, the model turned down the job. She testified during trial that David later showed up on her doorstep asking her to take the job again. She refused. Another model testified that David made advances toward her during a fitting session. In addition to testimony from several models, the state called crime scene supervisor Tommy Martin to the stand. He testified that the apparent ransacking of the Hendricks home was staged. Martin said several items of value were left at the house. These items included a camera, bikes, a watch, stereo equipment, and other items. Martin also testified that drawers were pulled open, but items inside were left undisturbed. He also said on the stand that blood spatter was found on the outside of the drawers in the children's bedrooms. These drawers had no blood on the inside, indicating to him that they were opened after the children were killed. During Martin's testimony, enlarged photos of the crime scene were shown in court. David cried quietly as these photos were shown. Earlier in the trial, David was granted permission to leave the courtroom while crime scene photos were shown, but he chose to sit through it. The defense contended that police narrowed their focus on David as the prime suspect from the beginning. The defense argued that police should have looked into and questioned other suspects. The defense argued there was, in fact, a robbery at the Hendricks home that night and contended cash was stolen during the robbery. Detective Charles Crow, who questioned David at a neighbor’s house the day the bodies were discovered, came under scrutiny while being cross-examined by the defense. The defense asked Crow quote, "Did you say to another policeman after the interview that you felt he was guilty?" Crow said quote, "Yes." Detective Crow also testified that David used a false car license number when he checked into a motel in the early morning hours after his family was murdered. David told Crow during questioning that he had been using the license number for a few years. The defense called character witnesses who testified that David was a family man who would sometimes watch the kids while Susan shopped. These witnesses described the Hendricks' marriage as, quote, loving, and said David kept toys at his office for the kids. David cried as one of the witnesses testified about the kids arguing over who got to sit next to Daddy. The defense called as a witness Irving Stone, who was chief of the Physical Evidence Section of the Institute of Forensic Sciences. Stone said on the stand that he believed a robbery did occur at the Hendricks home the night of the murders. He pointed to the fact that a bed cover in the master bedroom was turned up at the foot of the bed as if the burglar looked under the mattress. Stone said this was common in burglaries. He also pointed out that the China Hutch was left untouched and this indicated to him that the burglars were, quote, looking for certain things. Stone testified that cash was taken from the Hendricks' home that night. Credit cards and a checkbook were left behind, however. David's mother, Laverne, testified in David's defense. She said that she and David had a conversation prior to him making religious statements during interviews with reporters. Laverne spoke with David about, quote, praying for those who do harm to us. Laverne also testified that she and David talked about how, quote, it was all joy and peace for them now, referring to David's murdered family. David's mother-in-law, Nadine, Susan's mother, also testified on behalf of David. Susan's parents and siblings supported David throughout the entire trial. Nadine testified that she told David, quote, his family was with the Lord, better off than with the earth. By calling David and Susan's mothers to the stand, The defense was trying to give the jurors perspective on where David's strange religious comments to reporters may have stemmed from. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price Go to your happy price price line The prosecution zeroed in on something David said during an interview the day after the bodies of his family were discovered. David told the interviewer that it, quote, "looked like some things were taken." The prosecution thought David's statement was significant because seven Bloomington police detectives testified that David did not learn from them that his house appeared to be ransacked. If detectives didn't tell David about the apparent ransacking, and he was not allowed to go inside the house while it was a crime scene, how would David have known that items were taken from his home at that time? The prosecution pointed to David's inappropriate behavior toward models and his conservative religion as a motive for killing his family. The state theorized that David killed his family in order to pursue another lifestyle. The state also believed that David was ashamed of his sexual desires and killed his family in order to avoid a divorce, which would have been frowned upon within his church group. The state also contended that David staged a robbery at the home and left on an unplanned business trip to establish an alibi the evening of the murders. Several customers with whom David visited during the business trip testified that David didn't tell them he was going to be visiting them. These witnesses testified that David's visit caught them by surprise and he seemed unprepared for a business meeting with them. Some of the witnesses said that David didn't even have a back brace to show them during the business meeting. One customer testified that David seemed to be in a hurry and only spent about 10 minutes with her. Another customer said that David told her he was on a quote extended vacation and making rounds. The defense countered the state's theory in accusations calling several character witnesses who all said David was a family man. The defense also alleged that police narrowed their focus on David far too soon and didn't interview other potential suspects. And as you'll recall, they also called their own expert witness who testified that he believed the house was robbed the evening of the murders. These back-and-forth arguments were significant in the trial, but it was the contents of the children's stomachs that took center stage. The state would argue that they could pinpoint the victim's time of death fairly accurately due to what was found in the children's stomachs. The prosecution called John Spikes, chief toxicologist for the Illinois Department of Public Health. Spikes testified that based on the analysis of the children's stomachs, he believed Hendricks was home during the murders. Spikes came to this conclusion because the veggie pizza the kids ate around 7 p.m. had not been digested. In fact, Spikes said the pizza was only about 10% digested. There were recognizable pieces of mushroom, black olives, and onions found in the children's stomachs, and the food had not yet moved into the small intestine. According to Spikes, food typically leaves the stomach and moves into the small intestine within 2 hours of being consumed. Based on receipts from Chuck E. Cheese's, it was estimated that the children ate pizza around 7 p.m. Given that the food had not yet moved into the small intestine, Spikes testified that the time of death was around 9 or 9.30 p.m. According to David, he didn't leave the house until 12 a.m., about five hours after the kids ate pizza. Chicago psychiatrist Dr. Richard Rapaport was called as a witness during trial. This was not the first high-profile murder trial at which Dr. Rappaport had been called as a witness. He also testified at the trial of infamous serial killer John Wayne Gacy. After examining David Hendricks for about 12 hours, Dr. Rappaport testified that David had quote, borderline character disorder that may reach the level of insanity. That said, Dr. Rappaport could not hypothesize as to whether David was responsible for murdering his family. Dr. Rappaport went on to say that David did not have any reaction to the news of his family being murdered or charges being brought against him. He said, quote, The lack of signs of stress under all these conditions makes me think something is amiss. Dr. Rappaport further stated that, quote, It is quite possible the insanity label could apply. In a rare move, David Hendricks took the stand in his own defense. He spent about two and a half hours on the witness stand his voice shaky as he admitted being attracted to a number of women hired to model his back brace. Even with these admissions, David said his feelings for his wife were not, quote, diminished. While being questioned by the prosecution, David admitted to making sexual advances toward two models and explained it by saying, quote, I'm a normal man with all the hormones floating around. David also admitted to giving a massage to another model. He said they both understood that the massage was, quote, something of a sexual nature. David vehemently denied a claim by one of the models, who said he admitted to her that he had extramarital affairs and doubted his religion. That model also testified that David tried kissing her on the cheek and asked if he could, quote, fantasize about her. On the stand, David denied asking if he could fantasize about her and he said he could not recall whether he tried kissing her. The claims made by several models were important according to the prosecution. Important because the prosecution contended that David was in contact with about 10 models between 1980 and 1983, and his behavior toward them demonstrated, quote, a distinct pattern of sexual aggression. The state theorized this fell right in line with David's motive for the murders. David continued his testimony and admissions of inappropriate behavior toward a number of women during his marriage. Another incident David admitted to was a time when he said he became sexually attractive to a model during a photo shoot. David said, quote, I got the impression that maybe she was a bit loose, and maybe that wasn't the case at all. David also admitted to having sexual feelings toward a woman who was a member of his church. Regarding an incident with a model, David said, quote, It was a fleeting thing. David continued by saying, quote, I did something I shouldn't have done referring to a time when he pulled a model toward him during a back brace fitting. David further admitted that he deceived models by telling them he needed to take their measurements and mark their bodies to get data for a one-size-fits-all brace he was in the midst of inventing. That back brace never came to fruition. David testified that he and Susan did not have marital problems and often vacationed and went out to dinner together. When questioned about the night of the murders, David said he put the kids to bed around 9.30 after reading to them. In contrast, detectives believe this was about the time the children were murdered based on the undigested food in their stomachs. According to David's testimony, he, quote, read and rested in bed after putting the kids to bed. David said he remained in bed until Susan came home from the baby shower around 10.30 p.m. David said he left for a business trip not long after Susan arrived home. When questioned about his recent weight loss, new haircut, and shaved mustache, David said he lost weight and shaved his mustache for his wife. He said he got a new haircut because he had a coupon. The prosecution highlighted David's drastic makeover prior to the murders and insinuated this was all part of his desire to escape his marriage and pursue another life. The defense called Dr. Robert Stein, chief medical examiner of Cook County, to the stand. Dr. Stein, who performed autopsies on victims of John Wayne Gacy's, said on the stand that he could not, quote, with any degree of certainty say when digestion started and when time of death was. His testimony differed from the prosecution's witness, Dr. Michael Baden, who said he was, quote, 99% certain the children died within two hours of eating pizza, which would have been around 9 or 9.30 p.m., Dr. Stein, however, said there were several factors that made it hard to determine what time the children died. Number one, he said, the Hendricks home was heated and the victims were underneath blankets. This accelerates the deterioration of the bodies. Number two, he said, the autopsies were performed more than 24 hours after the time police contend the victims were killed. Putrefaction of the bodies had begun, which is one of the stages the body goes through post-mortem. The two medical experts who testified essentially canceled each other out, which was pointed out by Prosecutor Dozier. Even if jurors believed testimony from the prosecution's medical expert was canceled out, Dozier believed they could still convict David if they believed the following. Number one, the burglary was staged. Number two, David's Wisconsin business trip was planned in order to establish an alibi. And number three, phone calls made to friends and family were attempts to have someone find the bodies. At the end of the trial, Judge Boehner gave instructions to jurors saying, quote, You should not find the defendant guilty unless the facts or circumstances proved exclude every reasonable theory of innocence. Defense attorney John Lang asked the judge to give the jury an option for a lesser offense of voluntary manslaughter. Judge Boehner denied Lang's request. David's trial lasted over two months with testimony from 140 witnesses. This trial was the most expensive on record in McLean County at that time. The trial cost approximately $250,000 due to its length, the move to a different county, and the number of witnesses called to testify. On Friday, November 30th, 1984, the jury made up of six men and six women had reached its verdict. They deliberated for two days. David Hendricks was found guilty on four counts of murder. Shortly after the guilty verdict, his mother, Laverne, said she believed her son would rather be executed than spend his life in prison. She went on to say, quote, I'd rather see the death sentence for him because he would rather have that than spending his life in prison. Laverne later recanted her statement and said she didn't want to see her son die and that she may have spoken too soon. David's mother-in-law, Nadine, said after the verdicts that it was a, quote, travesty of justice. Susan's mother said she was quote, 100% certain David didn't do it. David did not show any emotion after hearing the verdicts. Although the jury heard evidence to determine whether David was eligible for the death penalty, David decided to allow Judge Boehner to determine his sentence. In determining whether the death penalty applied, certain factors had to be taken into consideration. Some of the factors in David's case were, number one, the fact there were multiple victims, number two, the young age of the victims, and number three, the heinous nature of the crime. The mitigating factors in David's case were the fact that he had no significant criminal record and the possibility of rehabilitation. After the verdicts, the defense requested a delay in deciding David's sentence in order to get his mental state tested. They were trying to determine whether David was mentally capable of committing the murders with intent and premeditation both of which were factors in determining death penalty eligibility. The judge granted the defense's request. About a month later, Judge Boehner decided David was eligible for the death penalty based on the heinous nature of the crimes, the use of multiple weapons, the victims receiving multiple and severe wounds, and the victims were struck after they were already dead. On January 10, 1985, two months after he was convicted of four counts of murder, David spoke to the judge during his sentencing hearing. He said, quote, Everyone knows the evidence was very, very slim. I don't know how they came to that conclusion. I'd like to plead for mercy, but that's inappropriate because I maintain my innocence. David asked the judge for, quote, righteousness and justice. Assistant State's Attorney Murphy said at sentencing, quote, Their lives were over when David picked up that axe. The two youngest had their faces chopped to a state that you couldn't stand to look at them for more than a few seconds. To call the murders brutal could well be the understatement of 1985. The next day, Judge Boehner handed down David's sentence. He began by saying, quote, I personally believe that the defendant probably did commit these offenses, and I must emphasize that I intend no criticism of the jury or its verdicts by this sentencing order. He went on to say, Based upon the evidence admitted on the trial against the defendant, I am not personally convinced that he has been proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I cannot in good conscience apply the sanction of death unless I have been convinced of his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. I have not, and mere belief is not enough. With that said, Judge Boehner sentenced David to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In addition, David was fined $44,000 and ordered to pay for the cost of court hearings. A lien was placed on David's real and personal property as part of the imposed fine. In closing, Judge Boehner said, I do intend to leave him with the ability and the burden of agonizing daily for the rest of his life over his part in the waste of four innocent lives, each of whom loved him and each of whom hopefully never consciously learned of the brutally dark side of his nature, an amazing and almost unbelievable disregard for human life, next to impossible for any reasonable human being to understand or accept any reasoning behind the moments of horror that occurred at 313 Carl Drive on November 6, 1983. After the trial concluded, some of the jurors shared their thoughts. It was clear they thought Dr. Baden's testimony regarding the undigested pizza in the children's stomachs was pivotal to the case. About a week after David was found guilty of murdering his family, he began negotiations to sell his business. The Hendricks family home was also sold shortly after the trial concluded. David Hendricks was convicted of murdering his entire family and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. You may think that's where David's story ends. It is not. In 1985, a year after he was found guilty, David hired two new attorneys to appeal his convictions to the 4th District Court of Appeals in Springfield. Interestingly, Susan Hendricks' family and heirs to her estate transferred their interest over to David in order to pay for his appeals. Susan's estate was worth approximately $121,000 and included her share of proceeds from the sale of his business, a patent for the back brace, and the sale of the family home. David's appeal, however, was unsuccessful. In a unanimous decision, the 4th District of Appeals upheld David's murder convictions in 1986, the year after he filed the appeal. Susan's family vowed to remain by David's side as he continued his legal fight. Shortly after David's appeal was rejected, he gave an interview from Menard Correctional Center. During the interview, David theorized that two intruders killed his family because two murder weapons were found in the home. David also said it's possible drugs were involved, and that may have led the intruders to the wrong house. The same year the 4th District of Appeals rejected David's appeal, the Illinois Supreme Court agreed to hear another appeal from David. This decision surprised McLean County State's Attorney Ronald Dozier. Dozier believed there was a slim chance David's appeal would be heard by the Supreme Court given that his previous appeal was unanimously rejected by the 4th District of Appeals. David's new appeal claimed that he was not proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, and that testimony, especially from the numerous models, should not have been allowed because it unfairly prejudiced jurors. The state, however, stuck to its original theory that testimony from the models showed a pattern of sexual aggression that pointed toward a motive for the murders. David himself wrote a a nine-and-a-half-page personal appeal letter to the Illinois Supreme Court, which claimed, quote, prosecutors prevented the jury from acting reasonably by occupying them with sex and character attacks. In 1988, with his second appeal in limbo, David Hendricks announced in a news release his plans to marry Pat Miller, a 37-year-old, recently divorced mother of three. David and Pat met through the mother of another prison inmate. The prison warden, however, denied David's request for marriage, citing, quote, he didn't consider it in the best interest of the inmate since he is serving a life sentence with no parole. The prison warden, however, changed his mind and allowed David and Pat to be married, but conjugal visits would not be allowed. Members of David's family attended the ceremony. Susan's mother, Nadine, and staunch supporter of David, also attended the ceremony. In December of 1988, just after his marriage to Pat, the Illinois Supreme Court rejected David's second appeal to overturn his conviction in a fortitude decision. In its ruling, the High Court cited motive, evidence that the victims were killed with items from the Hendricks' home, and no signs of forced entry as mitigating factors for the decision to reject David's second appeal. David reacted to this major blow by saying it may be a, quote, disguised blessing— as the decision would allow him the opportunity to disclose results of a private investigation that shows he's innocent and offers, quote, some dynamite information on a suspect. The following year, in a rare move, the Illinois Supreme Court agreed to rehear David's appeal. It was speculated that some of the justices had doubts regarding the court's previous ruling which rejected David's appeal. David filed a motion to appear in court and stated for the first time that he planned to accuse his ex-brother-in-law, John Lewis, of murdering his family. John Lewis was the ex-husband of Susan Hendricks' sister, Martha. Originally, Martha Lewis corroborated her husband's alibi and said he was at home in bed with her during the time of the murders. Now divorced, Martha was claiming there was a two-hour gap in her ex-husband's alibi the night her sister nieces and nephews were murdered. In July of 1990, seven years after Susan Hendricks and her three children were murdered, the Illinois Supreme Court reversed its previous decision and threw out David's convictions and four life sentences. The court cited that jurors were unfairly prejudiced in David's original trial. In its ruling, the court disallowed the prosecution from using testimony from the models and also testimony regarding David's religious beliefs as a motive for the murders. Now it was up to McLean County State's Attorney Charles Renard to decide whether the case would be retried. Ultimately, the decision regarding whether to retry David for murder a second time was handed off to the original State's Attorney Bradley Murphy. The jurors from David's first trial who convicted him displayed their disappointment with this decision in interviews. They still believed they made the right decision and that much of their decision was based on scientific evidence and not testimony from the models. Former state's attorney Murphy ultimately decided he would retry David for the murder of his wife and children. In 1991, as jury selection was underway in David's second trial, his new wife, Pat, made statements in support of her husband, saying she didn't regret marrying him and strongly believes in his innocence. What she probably did not know was that during this time, David was trading letters with a female inmate in prison. Some of these letters were sexually explicit in nature, and David professed strong feelings for this woman. More on that later. David Hendrick's second trial began in February of 1991 in the town of Bloomington, the city where the murders occurred, the second trial was again presided over by Judge Boehner. David was represented by a new defense lawyer named Michael Costello. Both sides, again, argued time of death, with the prosecution again pointing to the previous testimony, which pointed to the fact that children had undigested food in their stomachs. Due to that fact, the prosecution still claimed the children died about two hours after they ate pizza and more importantly, before David left on his business trip. The defense was still claiming this method of determining the time of death was unreliable. The prosecution also argued again that the burglary was staged. Susan Hendricks was known to keep an immaculate house, and this was demonstrated in photos shown to the jury. Besides the open drawers and a purse turned on its side on the floor, the house was very clean. There were photos showing drawers open, but contents inside appeared to be undisturbed. Another photo showed David's wedding ring laying on top of a dresser. The prosecution argued that burglars would have taken the ring if an actual burglary had occurred. The state also presented an evidentiary photo of a wooden knife holder that was made to hold six knives. Only five knives were in the holder. In the second trial, Costello, David's defense attorney, actually admitted the crime scene was staged. Costello instead emphasized that scientific evidence the state was using to determine time of death was, quote, unreliable. This time around, the prosecution called an inmate to the stand to testify about a supposed confession from David. The inmate, Danny Wayne Stark, was an inmate with David at Menard Correctional Center. After learning that David was granted a new trial, Stark spoke up about a confession David made to him about killing his family. On the witness stand, Stark said that David told him he felt trapped in his marriage and no longer wanted to be with Susan. He went on to say that David told him Susan became aware of his extramarital affairs and that she threatened to tell her family and David's. Because of both families' strict religious beliefs, David told Stark he believed Susan could, quote, ruin him. Stark seemed to know specific details about the murders. Stark testified that David told him he pulled the covers over one of the victim's heads before he killed them. Susan was found with covers pulled completely over her body and head. When challenged by the defense, Stark said he was receiving nothing in exchange for his testimony and that he would not be received well by fellow inmates if they knew he was helping the prosecution. Stark said, quote, This is going to cause me a lot of misery. If you think I wanted to come here, you are wrong. To counter Stark's testimony, the defense called some inmates to the stand who testified that Stark was a known liar. The inmates also testified that Stark may have gotten details about the murders by reading some of David's legal documents which he kept inside his cell. The defense argued that although there were no signs of forced entry, the Hendricks family always kept a spare key outside of their home. When police arrived on the scene that day, a sliding glass door was found to be unlocked. The defense also brought to the jury's attention an unidentified footprint which was found in the Hendricks kitchen. Defense attorney Michael Costello argued that the footprint belonged to the killer. The prosecution again pointed out one of David's comments to a reporter the day after his family was found murdered. David said to the reporter that, quote, it looked like things were taken. All police who were at the scene that day deny telling David the house appeared to be ransacked. Police also testified at David's first trial that they did not let him go inside the house the day the bodies were discovered. The prosecution pointed out to the jury that David's comment was very telling, as the only way that he could have known this information was if he had been in the house during the murders. The prosecution also pointed out several supposed lies that David told customers he had visited during his business trip. One of those customers claimed that David told him he was on an extended vacation. Another customer testified that David told him he was attending a family reunion. It was also pointed out that David told some of the customers he didn't have a back brace with him. But police found a back brace inside David's car after he arrived at the crime scene. Both the prosecution and the defense suffered blows to their cases from some of Judge Boehner's rulings in the second trial. This time around, Judge Boehner would not allow the Arizona model to testify regarding her supposed conversation with David just weeks prior to the murder. The model claimed that David tried to kiss her and told her he feared his wife would learn of his extramarital affairs. The prosecution argued this conversation pointed toward motive, but the judge would not allow it. Judge Boehner also barred the defense from presenting any evidence that pointed toward David's ex-brother-in-law being the murderer. As mentioned previously, David remarried in prison and sometime afterward began exchanging explicit letters with a female inmate at the prison. The female inmate was Jody Singletary, a mother of four children. Jody was in prison on a murder charge that alleged she stabbed her 33-year-old boyfriend to death. The prosecution tried to get these letters entered in as evidence in the second trial, but Judge Boehner wouldn't allow it. I have copies of all of these letters. David wrote a dozen letters to Jody during a six-week period from mid-October to late November of 1990. Here are some excerpts from David's letters to Jody. In a letter dated October 16, 1990, David writes, quote, You look really good for having four kids. I've been trying to check your cute little body out, but it's hard to see in that orange jumpsuit. Think you can talk them into putting me in M-Block so I could check it out better? David ends that sentence with a drawing of a sad face. In another letter, on October 19, 1990, David writes, I don't have the faith I once had. He goes on to say, You're a doll. Only 90 pounds, huh? Mmm, just a second. I have to dry my lips. I'm drooling. David ended that sentence with a drawing of a happy face. David also wrote, I'd take you over my knee and spank you, but you'd like it too well. The next day, David wrote another letter to Jody saying, Like on the subject of what you tried to do for me last night, I sure wish I could have seen your sweet tits. I keep thinking about them and imagining what they must look like. David goes on to describe in great detail how he thinks her breasts look as well as what he would do to them and other parts of her body. David expresses in his letters to Jody that he would like to be in a relationship with his wife Pat and Jody at the same time. David wrote to Jody in another letter, quote, She, referring to Pat, would take you upstairs and help you get ready for me, and she would tell you what I like and how to please me. David also wrote in more than one letter to Jody that she should destroy all letters he wrote to her as he didn't want them to potentially hurt his ongoing legal fight. On March 28, 1991, the jury had reached a verdict in David's second trial. David Hendricks was acquitted of all murder charges and walked out of prison a free man after spending seven years behind bars. He kissed his wife, Pat, for the first time that day. The jury foreman later said the jury was not swayed by Stark's testimony about David's supposed confession. Other people speculated that the jury struggled to accept the state's theory regarding the time of death, because the defense called several pathologists to the stand, who testified that analysis of stomach contents is an unreliable means of determining time of death. A few days after his release, David gave an interview saying, quote, I want to find out what happened. Not to try is something I am incapable of doing. I want to know who murdered my family. He also spoke about a man who may have killed his family and said he wants to speak with him. David said, quote, I hope to talk to him personally. I think I can talk to him open-mindedly. After his acquittal, David moved in with Pat and her children. But the marriage wouldn't last. David went on to marry two more times after Pat. David, now in his 60s, resides in Orlando, Florida and lives with his fourth wife. They've been married for 16 years and have two young children together. David got back into the prosthesis business and sold another back brace company for a large sum of money. David also authored a book about a fellow prison inmate, Henry Hillenbrand. The book tells the true story about Hillenbrand, who killed his girlfriend and another man, escaped prison and spent 13 years as a fugitive. In the case of the Hendricks murders, no other suspects have panned out and the Hendricks murder case remains unsolved today. Susan Hendricks would have been 65 and the children would have all been in their 40s. They are all buried next to one another at Evergreen Cemetery in Bloomington, Illinois. The oldest of the Hendricks children, Rebecca, known as Becky, was just nine years old when she was murdered. Becky wrote a letter to her grandparents before she died. In her letter, Becky wrote, Dear Grandma and Grandpa, I love you very much. I have a sticker book, please help. How are you feeling? Mom and blank space are home from England. I love you. Love, Becky. I want to thank listener Steve Field for his help with this episode. Steve actually suggested this story to me a few months ago and subsequently provided me with a ton of useful information regarding the case. Steve's help was instrumental in pulling this story together and bringing it to all of you who are listening now. So thank you, Steve. I appreciate your help and all of your support for the podcast. Listeners, I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on this case. Do you think David Hendricks deserved a second trial? Do you think he's innocent or guilty? Do you think testimony about David's religion and conduct with several models was prejudicial and therefore should not have been allowed in his first trial? Let's talk about this in the Murderish Podcast Facebook group. Also, stick around to hear a couple of promos from my True Crime Podcast friends. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. I know this was an especially tough story to get through. I'm looking forward to seeing you all again very soon. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a 5-star rating and review. This helps the podcast in more ways than you know. And don't be shy. Tell a friend. The word of mouth is powerful. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Facebook at Murderish Podcast. And remember, listeners of this podcast aren't murderers, you're just murder-ish. Thanks for listening and see you soon. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a weekly true crime podcast that focuses on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. We're a comedy podcast with a dark sense of humour. But we're dead serious about murder and the people it affects. We find humour in some unexpected places. But never at the expense of the victims or their families. We've been described as the blue cheese of podcasting. Addictive, strong and satisfying. And a bit stinky. I am not. You know you are. Bloody Murder. Murder is available on your favorite podcatcher. Hey guys, I'm Heather. And I'm Rochelle, And And we're from from Nature Nature vs. Narcissism, narcissism, a true crime podcast mixed with some dark humor. Sometimes we have alcohol. Sometimes we have guests. Since I've always been fascinated by true crime, I wanted to delve deeper into the criminal mind and discuss why these criminals commit these vile acts. Was it nature? Was it nurture? Or was it just plain old narcissism? Join us every week for a brand new episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and Podbean. Don't call the cops.
1: Bye.